Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Boy, what a crowd. Pretty good. So here we go. This is one of my favorite parts of doing a Commonwealth Club event. Welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. I'm Adam Lashinsky, executive editor of Fortune, and your moderator for tonight's program. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's Ethics and Accountability Series, underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation, with additional support from the Bernard Osher Foundation for our Good Lit programs. I'm now very pleased to introduce tonight's guest, Charles Schwab, founder, former CEO, and chairman of the Charles Schwab Corporation, and author of the new book, Invested, Changing Forever the Way Americans Invest. Charles Schwab is one of the world's most influential financial executives with, as of 2019, (laughs) I'm not done, nearly $3.6 worth of assets managed by the eponymous Charles Schwab & Company. He founded the brokerage firm in 1971 with a $100,000 loan and has since grown it into a financial services juggernaut. Mr. Schwab's memoir, Invested, lays out his passion to change the way we invest and the hard work, ingenuity, and entrepreneurship that propelled his vision into one of the leading financial service firms in the world. From studying economics at Stanford University to guiding his company through decades of economic transformations and fluctuations, he recounts the defining moments of his life while providing unique insight into the evolutionary dynamics of entrepreneurial companies. Today, we're pleased to be able to have a conversation with Mr. Schwab about the how-tos of financial management and his advice on obtaining a fulfilling career and life. Please join me in welcoming Charles Schwab. Thank you. Well... Got a lot of my fans out here. Thank you very much, Adam. It's a real pleasure. I stacked the deck here, I think, a little bit. I was thinking you might want to quit while you're ahead. I think so. I'm leaving right now, baby. (laughs) Well, let's start at the beginning, not not the beginning of your life, which we can come back to, but the beginning of of your your life's work, if you will. And it was in 1975, you had an entrepreneurial aha moment. Yes. Would you uh, tell tell everybody about it as you describe in the book? Well, that was May 1 of 1975, and the Congress made the decision to make sure that commissions were all negotiable before they were fixed for over 200 years at certain levels, whatever it was fixed rates all the way through for the prior 200 years. And on that day, they liberated the whole thing and democratized, in many respects, the ability to invest any way you wanted to and pay any price, depending on which broker you use. We lowered our prices substantially, and others raised their prices a little bit, like Merrill Lynch did. And it created a huge gap, gap for us to enter into the business with low prices and hopefully great service. And we started with four people, originally not in 75. We started a couple of years before because we knew this change was going to occur. And uh, so today we have about 20,000 employees that work with us, try to serve our customers. I think one of the common themes of entrepreneurialism, and you, you mm-hmm. write about being an entrepreneur, you identify as an entre- entrepreneur, is that you the things you see and act on are, are what separate you from everyone else. So, for example, what Congress did wasn't a secret. No. It was the opposite of a right. secret. Everyone in the securities industry knew about it. So c- can you reflect a little bit on why this, what, what, it, what we now look back on as obvious and what, was it, and what enabled you to create your business, why you were able to act on it and others didn't? Well, we weren't the only... Uh, firm that sort of entered into that area of discounted commissions. There were a few others, most of which were in New York. We happen to be in San Francisco. So this really is a San Francisco story and from stem to stern, to say the least. So on Montgomery Street, I had four employees, and I thought this is a great idea to go into this business. And uh, at the time, so we 
started, this is a couple years before the 75 change, but I had this idea that customers really wanted a better deal than being sold high commission products, being sold stories along the way that some were true, most of them were just hyper stories, and it was a way to create a commission or a compensation for the selling broker. And so I wanted to have a place for people to invest. And the reason I got into this, because I I was just out of Stanford Business School in 1961, it was, and I worked as a financial analyst for the next 10 years or so, and a portfolio manager. And so many brokers came to our little firm. I was just with a little teeny company near Menlo Park, or in Menlo Park at the time. And I just got to know that brokers are... This is a bad business. They are based upon the wrong kind of foundation. They weren't based upon customer service or customer values or all those kinds of things that you all want to hope for. Uh, so anyway, we decided, or I decided 10 years later, now 71, 72, 73, basically, uh, when we really started the company with this view in mind. And so we first thing I did is say, I don't want any salesman in our company. No salesman will ever call you. We have we compensated our employees by salary plus bonus based upon the success of the total company. And if we were really successful, everyone got a nice bonus. We weren't. And so everyone was really focused on customer service because they wanted to have them refer new customers to us and wanted to grow and prosper. And that's how we were different then and we've been different. They kept the same model for the last 40 years. And uh, you, you make a, uh, this is a profound point you make early in the book that you come back to repeatedly. You were, you decided your company was not going to sell. You were going to market. Right. And, and we're going to, we'll talk about marketing because you, you also identify yourself as a marketer, you personally. Right. Um, you, your book has a lot of really nice uh, detail about you, about about your your early life. You're a Californian th- through and through. Uh, just tell everybody a little bit about uh, where you grew up and and how how it was. The, well, why being a Californian is part of your story. It's sort of interesting. My maternal or my paternal father, grand, grandmother, was born in San Francisco in the 1880s. My father was born in San Francisco in the 1950s, 1915 exactly. I was born in Sacramento, so basically I've grown up here and spent my whole life here in California and such, and went to school here, etc. so I'm really a local guy. But that was serendipitous in many respects. I think San Francisco ended up being, for me, I could do things that you wouldn't ever do in New York City. So many people didn't realize I started the company here, built the company here in San Francisco and never had all the negative things that uh, New York brokers sort of had and retained. And so that was very beneficial. The other part was the fact that technology and innovation was clearly happening in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, etc. So I adopted a lot of those great things in the uh, introduction to our company and make us much more efficient than we ever were all through those years. Even before the Internet, we were applying all the best of technology. So that was really beneficial. Lucky I was here. And the third thing was we were able to market close at 1 o'clock New York time. Of course, it's so focused on New York. So we had all afternoon to clean up uh, the, at the time because so much of the paperwork was just paperwork, wasn't technology. And so we had the extra time to make sure our back office was clean all the way through. And uh, a couple times they weren't, but for the most part, we had the, <laughs> for the most part, we uh, were able to had a clean back office. You, uh, you describe, uh, I'm, I'm going to touch on three things that were important early in your life uh, to, to you. And um, one is that when you got out of college, you had a whole lot of jobs. You did a whole bunch of things. One of them was selling insurance. And you weren't, I don't know if it's right to say you weren't any good at it. You I didn't like it. It didn't work. Tell um, everybody. Well, I had a number of jobs. And I think it's really critical for you to encourage young people to get jobs, any kind of job. And I had any kind of job. I just switched on the railroad and I did. But speaking about, I was between uh first and second year in business school. And so I thought, well, I better learn something about the insurance industry because I was focused on being in the financial services world. So I wanted to work at a bank the year before, and then I wanted to see about insurance. 
And I was a complete failure at that. I I really found out that this stuff was so overpriced in terms of the sales commissions involved in the thing. They wanted to have a list of all my family and all my friends and so forth. And I just, I, I never sold a single policy. And I, when I started to analyze what the insurance stuff was about, I said, this is not for me. And I finally, after about six weeks, I think they encouraged me to quit. <laughs> You were even clear in the book. You said you were skeptical about most insurance products, period. Well, they're all built upon a sales kind of content that was uh, extraordinarily expensive when you analyze how they're constructed. And uh, I learned that very quickly and decided I think it was a bad thing for most Actually, they had me selling endowments to that 20-year endowments. Oh, my gosh. To anybody. That was the stupidest thing to ever do because I was always interested in investing. I thought, well, putting your money in something might grow a little bit faster than an insurance product, which sucks most of the returns out, goes to the insurance company. So anyway, that was an early learning. Um, Another uh, early passion of yours and current passion of yours is golf. I believe you got into it playing for the high school team in Santa Barbara. Yeah, you're right, Adam. I loved it. Why is, why is uh, other than enjoying it, why is golf such a big deal? Well, it turned out that I was not, I love basketball. I really love basketball. It turned out I wasn't tall enough. So, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing I could do about that one. I played junior basketball in, in, uh, in, high, in college, I mean, not in college, but in high school. And all of a sudden, as a sophomore, junior, I was just, these other guys were six, two, and three, and so forth, and I was looking up to them. So I decided... Maybe golf is really a, a, an area I should probably focus on because even Ben Hogan was five six or five seven. So I thought, wow, that was my my iconic man. So I wanted to copy him, and that was the reason why I went for golf. Um, many people will know this, but I suppose some won't know that that Chuck is dyslexic. And I want to I want to push you on something you wrote. You said that for forty years you wrote that for forty years you thought that you were stupid. Slow or something. I was somehow or other. I could not read as fast as some of my my friends in school, and it really upset me a whole lot. And my comprehension wasn't as good as theirs. And so it was always I had to read things a couple times to really understand what was going on. So it was just it was always to me it was sort of a handicap. But I never talked about it. It It's the kind of thing you would never speak to anybody about how slow you might be in reading because there's a lot of stigma attached to it. <laughs> but you you didn't know what dyslexia so was, I, is that correct? I discovered when my youngest son had the same exact issues that I had in school, at, and he was seven or eight, took him down to be um, re- reviewed by psychologists and so forth to see what his issue was about reading. And they came back, said, your son has dyslexic issues and this, that, and the other thing. And said, it was a great revelation to me to find out his problems were identical to mine as a kid and explained everything. But the word dyslexia and that whole science was really undeveloped when I was young. And it's been relatively analyzed, even, you know, MRIs of the brain, how the brain functions slightly different in that area where you... uh, deal with words and conversion of words and meaning and that kind of thing. So, um, anyway, turns out it solved, for me, a lot of issues that I had earlier. It was a big aha moment for me. So, so from that point forward, my wife and I decided to, to develop a, uh, a charity thing for uh, a service for other parents who had kids with learning issues like that. It was called the Parents Education Resource Center. We did it down in San Mateo. And uh, we had many, many, many families come, brilliant moms and dads, and they got this kid with, he can't read very fast. Mm-hmm. What's what's wrong with him? Mm-hmm. You're normal in every other respect. You just have a processing problem that, you know, you have to identify. And so book, <laughs> books on tapes are a great way to read books. <laughs> So one of the things I really admired about your book is that it's both very accessible to the average reader, but you go deep into all the major business events of your career right. for the for the sophisticated well, business reader. Adam, it's really a story 
a San Francisco story about a company started with four employees here in San Francisco on Montgomery Street and grew to 20,000 over about 40 years of time. And all the ups and downs, we were bought by the Bank of America one time. One time we were very large shareholders of the Bank of America and there were issues there. So I had to, we finally bought ourselves back, uh, after quite a struggle. That was in 1987. So the story about all that, me going on the Bank of America board was really interesting. Uh, also, you'll love reading about that. And then, fortunately, we were able to free ourselves from the B of A and buy the company back uh, in 1987, it was, <clears throat> and then start anew, basically, in terms of our growth pattern. And uh, so it's sort of a fun story to dig back and review. Um, a lot of your your stories are, are very fun and, and interesting. Um, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago about how and why technology has always been important to Schwab. Will you go all the way back and explain the first time technology was important and and what you know why you were so persistent about oh. spending big money on it even when you didn't necessarily have big money, right? Right. Well, that was sort of the first transaction I. S- talk about in the, in the book about an entrepreneur. I bet the whole company, this is 19, 1979, the whole company on buying a software system I thought would solve our beginning software problem as we were getting more and more volume, more and more paperwork and all that stuff. I had to solve this thing. Otherwise, we're either going to go deep in the sink or we're going to thrive. Thank God we worked hard through that whole time period and were able to come out at the other end with a system that was really worked well. So we were very early on in adopting sort of an online system. It wasn't Internet. Internet wasn't really coming about until 1995, 96. So we had all those years of using a very efficient system that we I talk about a little bit. And I, I don't bore you with that information, but... But anyway, the software cost me $500,000 at that time. It was 1979. And the company was worth (laughs) $500,000. So that was a big decision, let me tell you. (laughs) Now, you mentioned B of A a moment ago. You were, were, it was a young company. You were growing quickly. Why did you sell the Bank of America in the first place? Well, we thought originally that they were going to lend us some money. They sort of suggested that. And as they got in to study our business model, they thought, hmm, this is a pretty good business. Maybe we ought to buy that company and diversify. And they sort of flashed a couple big numbers on me. And having come from really zero money myself, uh, $55 million was a whole lot of money for the whole of the company. And I think I own maybe 40% of the company, which is a lot of money, let me tell you, then, in 1981. So we finally decided to do that to make the transaction happen because I was faced with, as we grew and grew, we needed more and more money to grow. You need that in in capital. And I was turned down by many venture capitalists along the way. And certainly Wall Street didn't come to my aid because we were creating competition for them, right? We were just lowering the prices and making great service for customers. And thousands of customers were joining our our company as, as clients. And so they didn't want to finance it any further, so I had a tough time raising money. So the B of A thing was a very attractive thing at that time, my age, and uh, the development of the company. But soon, over the next three or four years, it became clear that we were under the wrong umbrella and had to work our way out of there. Now, not only that, but they ran into huge problems. That's what I mean. They ran into huge problems. They lent money to the Greek shipping guys that went down the tubes. And Argentina, they had all kinds of loans to South America. It went on and on and on. And so they had to sell the big building, the big tall building here in downtown San Francisco. They sold a couple other subsidiaries, their Italian subsidiary. They had And so I said, hey, sell us. So I convinced them to sell us, and uh, that was another interesting story. About uh, I, and they said, "Okay, we'll sell you," and so we'll sell you to the highest bidder. I said, "That's terrific," but you know very well that I'm not for sale. You can sell the company. I'm going to start a similar company right across the street, and uh, it was a it wasn't an idle threat. It was a real threat because I was going to do it, and uh, I was a little bit. Set with them because 
going back when we made the deal with them, our stock, we went at a stock-for-stock transaction, and their stock was like $24 a share. That was the top tick. And I think the next four years, it went from 24 all the way down eventually to something like 9 so I was an unhappy guy for many reasons. That was my total, our total net worth. My wife's right over here in the corner. She's sort of shy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a non-trivial point. They could sell Charles Schwab, but they couldn't sell Charles Schwab. Person, yeah, right. So I had a name and likeness, a sort of provision in there that they couldn't, that wasn't for sale. And so, and have the serendipitous that I used my name and face by that time in advertising. So I was getting, you know, people identified the company with me. And so I don't know who they're going to sell it to when the guy, the namesake goes down the street about a block and opens up another similar competing company. So anyway, we came to terms. They were really happy. They got ended up with five, six times what they had paid me for in compensation in five years' time. So that was a good return for them. Um, Chuck, well, I want to come back to the to leaving B of A in a moment. And, and But before that, uh, you, you mentioned that the company was identified with you. It was you were in the advertising. Your name was on the door. If I remember correctly, that wasn't 100% your, your idea. It was not my Could idea. Could you no. talk about that? Well, that was an interesting moment in time. Uh, the guy who was our advertising Executive at the time, the same as Richard Cruiser, wonderful guy, uh, who, uh, this is now 1977, we had a great article about the company and the examiner. Remember the examiner? San Francisco examiner. <laughs> and it was big picture of me, and actually the picture's in the book. I'm leaning over this thing that they call a Bunker Ramo machine. It's the quote machine. And they had a nice article about how well we were doing and growing, etc. And so Dick said to me, Chuck, why don't we use that picture of you in the ad? Because before we had ads that said, save 75% on your transaction cost, like a one-inch, uh, you know, a one column by three inches. Then we got this two columns, and we were just, we could barely afford advertising at that time. But we grew and grew. Now, 77, I think we could afford a pick an ad about that size. <clears throat> so I said, let's put your picture in there. I said, are you kidding me? What do you think my... Friends are going to say, you egomaniac, and what's, what's, what's my wife going to say? Are you kidding me? Put your name and face out there? You know, only those guys down at the post office, that's where they have their names and faces. <laughs> so anyway, I said, how about just try it once? I'll, Richard, we'll just try it once. So the results were up about 10 times what they normally were in terms of the advertising thing. And so we convinced everybody. I wasn't really that much of an egomaniac. In fact, I was pretty bashful at the time. And uh, we did it and worked. And so we decided that was the way we were going to operate here hereafter. So anyway, that's what happened. Questions are starting to come in from the floor. And so I'm going to oh. abandon my script right now and go to, uh, sure. go to their questions. I'm going to read three that are similar to each other. Uh, what advice would you give to a 16-year-old just starting in investments and figuring out his future path? The second question is what three pieces of advice can I – Take back to my high school students. And, and lastly, my son is graduating from college this year. What advice would you give him as he gets started with investing? I guess you get questions like this from time to time. Well, I do. Even for my grandkids. I have 13 grandchildren, so they ask uh, how many kids I – how many how – do how do you do well in the stock market? Uh, first, I would say it's all about education. You really got to read as much as you possibly can, even at 16, about how the world sort of functions in an economic sense and, and stocks along with it. What, what is a stock anyway? What, it's an ownership in a company. And we have thousands of companies in America. That's our system. Uh, we call it the capitalist system, a free enterprise, another better word than capitalist. But I have to tell you, just for the kid to understand, capitalism comes from the word caput, the Latin word meaning head. It means creation, innovation, all those kinds of things. That's why we love capitalism, because of the creation of iPods, uh, apples, uh, whatever it might be, but it comes from the creation of the human brain. Uh, anyway, learning about economics and how that all functions is, you, is really the important way to start. 
And unfortunately, schools today don't have much in terms of the economic uh, education. And it's a real, real problem, I think. Financial literacy is at a very low level, frankly. And people get in a lot of trouble with bad ideas about uh, credit cards and borrowing and all those kinds of things. They have no clue. They need to learn about that in school. So anyway, it becomes education. If you want to get successful in this business, read more about it, get passionate about it, understand why you're there. And uh, they don't have a great investment life for many years to come. We're all living a lot longer. You know? <laughs> um, let me drill down and play devil's advocate on that question and, and your answer. And, and I would say my advice to a young person would be buy index funds and whatever you do, don't buy individual stocks because you're probably going to do it poorly because the academic research proves that most people do. Well, I, I'm a great believer in index funds. Uh, having started one in 1991, it's, it's called the Schwab 1000. It's done incredibly well over the last 27 or 8 years. Uh, it's compounded about 9.9% compounded. And it's like the S&P 500, except we have 1,000 stocks. Uh, so I'm a longtime believer and supporter of it, and I have recommended it to many, many people. Index funds is a great way to start. However, it is a little bit boring. <laughs> In fact, it's very boring. And I think for a young person to step into an index fund doesn't get the real fabric of what investing is. How about Microsoft? How about Netflix? How about Facebook? How about all the things you see? And so guess what? We're going to solve that issue. We've got a thing coming up next year for young people who want to buy one-tenth of a share of mm, something, mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. fraction of things, mm-hmm. so they can take $1,000 from their gifts from their grandparents or something and divide it into maybe 25 different stocks. You know, And that'll be an easy way for them to get engaged, involved. And that's what you want to suck them into what they are really about. So they get the annual reports. They get interested and curious about what's happening next in that company. So I love index funds. It's the greatest way for most of us in this room to invest at low cost, all those kinds of things. Uh, but I think for the young kids, they got to make more mistakes early on and do it inexpensively. Wonderful segue to the next question from the room is, what was the most painful lesson you learned uh, about forming and growing a business? Well, lack of capital. <laughs> yeah, it had so many, you know, that's what venture capitalists do these days is they are, we have a great flourishing um, system there with equity capital available for great ideas. And you can see what happened with Facebook. So they were supported by, it was a great idea and they were supported by venture capitalists and so forth. Uh, so back when I started, there wasn't, that wasn't really a flourishing area to speak of. Uh, so that's really a, a beneficial thing to have. I think great ideas are, they have even uh, now uh, many ways you can do an advertising about, I, I'm looking for capital. It's now possible to even put an ad in the paper and say, I'm looking for capital. I want to pay for that ad. <laughs> <laughs> do, you have a, do you have a favorite mistake that you made that was just a plain out failure? There are many. There are too many. You've got to read the book to see them all. <laughs> Good entrepreneurs do, yeah. though, right? Have failures. Oh, all the way along. No, there was a whole series of things. And we never knew for sure where we were going to end up. Because so we had all these technology things to do, the money thing, the personnel. I mean, very early on, I couldn't hire the, the best people. I knew I was lacking different capabilities, but I couldn't afford the the competing salary, so I don't have to convince a person, come on, we're really got a great company, we're growing here, how about some stock options? That didn't cost me anything. And he said, yeah, okay, that sounds good. And so, but we didn't get the Harvard MBAs for sure, or the Stanford MBAs. I was the only one, actually. (laughs) Well, I... I appreciate and respect that you don't want to give away every detail in the book. So for the young people in the room who know all about the fire festival, that debacle of a music festival, there's a really funny story in Chuck's book about his investment in a music festival. And that's all I'll say about it. That was before the company started. Yes. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. Two questions of similar ilk from the room. How can investing help address the growing problem of income inequality in our country? And that is signed by a Schwab client. And the second take on that topic is how can we lower income inequality globally through economic empowerment? Yeah, that's a big issue for all of us that we're facing now, how that all occurred. Um, I, frankly, I think education is probably the only way to really do it. We've got to get more young people interested in why they should invest, uh, why, you know, average person lived until they were 65, that's 30 years ago, and now they're 85 or hopefully higher. Uh, and so there's a huge time period where we all have to take care of ourselves. We develop our own paycheck in that 20 or 30 years of after we retire from a company or whoever we might work for. Uh, but that's education is truly, really critically important. So kids know when they get engaged and they, they do something, they use their 401ks or IRAs, all the things that government has set up to incentivize people to save more and to uh, invest more. I think uh, just in the current basis, if I were president of the United States right now, I would increase the uh, uh, earned credit uh, thing on taxes so that people at the very low end poverty levels would get a, a tax credit back that would was increased a little bit this last time uh, when the tax bill was changed, but I would have probably doubled at least that. That would help, at the, certainly at the low end. Although my understanding is that most people at the low end pay no taxes, so how, how, do, how, does, how no, does that help? It doesn't make a difference. They still get a check back. Uh-huh. Okay. But it does encourage them that you have to work in order to get that back. And, and, it's called an earned tax credit. And to be clear, there's, there's an, there, it is implied in those two questions that I just read that, that, there, that income inequality is not only a problem but a worsening problem. And it, do, you, do you agree with that? Uh, I think some sometimes it's overstated. I mean, we see you know Warren Buffett, or we see a, you know Amazon founder, and have these enormous, god awful numbers. Uh, but I think what happens to uh, that there's not enough uh, attribute to their the contributions that they do make in terms of innovation, what they've done for society. And yeah, that looks like a heck of a lot, but most of them are very philanthropic. Give back tons and tons of money to different things along the way. And then guess what? They die too, and it goes away, you know, for the most part. So I don't think you want to take away incentives. We have a system that really incentivizes people to work hard because we all benefit by all the innovations that some of these wealthy people have uh, done, but it's not a forever thing. So don't take away that incentive. That would be, that would be, you know, obviously socialism. We don't all want to drive the same car. We don't all wear the same clothes. We don't want, the life is about our intellectual capacities and then our creativity and all those things makes life much more interesting than socialism. I'm going to read another question from the room. Uh, is the massive accumulation of funds in index funds leading to overvaluations and compromising the price discovery process. Do you see this as a bubble in the making? I don't see that at all as a bubble. I think price discovery and, and man, there's always people out there that are doing valuations of companies and finding gaps. When they're undervalued, they step in and buy. There's thousands of hedge funds. There's probably 10,000 hedge funds. There's all kinds of people with the individual portfolios are always looking for new values. So, yes, maybe 45% of the investing, the big investing is through index funds, but I don't see that as a problem. Um, you mentioned philanthropy a moment ago. Here's another question from the room. I understand you have a great passion for philanthropy. Can you tell me how you incorporated this into your corporation and the opportunities for your clients through the corporation? Uh, you're talking about our charitable funds, uh, we have, which has been very successful over the years. Actually, we just had a, our 20th anniversary of it yesterday, and I went to the 
meeting with the directors and so forth and talking about how we now have $15 billion in the thing. We give, it gives out about $3 billion a year to 150 different, 150, 150,000 different charities. And we do it for our clients. It's a very easy way to go about giving and so forth. We do all the paperwork and that kind of stuff. So that's really important. But me personally and Ellen might personally, uh, we've always felt that, you know, if we were successful in life, which, you know, we wasn't uh, obvious to anybody until we were probably 40 or 45 years of age, that we had uh, responsibility to give back to society where we got benefits, whether it's education or whether it's helping people who have learning, uh, kids with learning issues, or whether, in our case, we help build a museum here in town. We did that thing, and uh, lots of things, charter schools were very, we had a, our own foundation meeting today, as a matter of fact, talking about different uh, things that we particularly like education. Charter schools have been really very, uh, very instrumental in helping grow that part of the thing. So it goes on and on and on. Uh, I, I really like the... Um the way you describe yourself as a, as a maverick, you made you made your career sort of poking Wall Street's eye, eye just a little bit, and so not intentionally. I did, I really did it through the through the lens of what would a customer like, and I always thought Wall Street was based upon how much money could they make off of whatever it might be a service that they're offering, not whether or not the customer really liked it or not. So I reversed the whole thing around. And so that was a little bit of our secret sauce. <laughs> I, I thought that uh, I, my read was that you, you sort of take great pride in. No, that was not. The a ja- ja- it just happened to be we were reversed everything and they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> we were thinking about our client first and they don't. That's, that's true. Do you think it's still the case? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have CEOs of major companies come to say, Chuck, I'd love to have a system like you where my employees only get a salary plus bonus based upon the success and the happiness of their clients. No, they love the commission business. These guys can make a whole lot more money the way they do, the way they do their business. And uh, anyway, he would like to come our way, but he can't do it. All his employees, they'd say we'd quit. Then they come work for us. Huh? <laughs> I'd be okay. I'd be okay too. <laughs> so when this, I want to come um, come back to B and B of A because it was interesting how you grabbed your business back, as it were. But before you did, uh, I, if I if I have the age correctly, you were forty six years old, and you you commented that you were the youngest board member at, at By a long shot. By a long shot. <laughs> no, they had a B of A board. You can imagine this pristine institution. It was the, probably the most premier bank in the country at the time. This is now in the mid-'80s uh, before there was really sort of interstate competition and such. Uh, so B of A had, in terms of California, had a branch on every corner of every town. And... Uh, so they on their board, it was sort of a, the first day I walked into the board, there's a room probably about the size of this room here and had a big long table and thing. And every position had a little leather book there right in front of your name printed out there, Charles Schwab. And so I was pretty impressed with that thing and looked around the room. We had people that ran Levi Strauss or Transamerica or, you know, all the big corporations at the time. Uh, were on the board. Somebody was on the board. And they were all mostly men. There was, I think, there was one lady. But uh, anyway, it was 27 of them, and uh, I think they all maybe owned 100 shares of the company. So they didn't have a really keen interest in this thing. And I come in, of course, my whole net worth and then sort of the, one of the larger shareholders of B of A. And so I thought I had a reasonably good position to be able to speak out about the company, which I was really quiet, like a mouse, for the first year or so, and then then I stopped to roar a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so you um, you had in many ways you had very good timing with with buying your company back, and not only doing that, but very quickly you took the company public. Right, I had to because I was had too much borrowed money, and I wanted to. 
certainly uh, deleverage, as they say, and thank goodness I did. And that's uh, it was we call that the tsunami year. It was '87. It's really a, a really a, a fast read, but <laughs> we were. It was rough, rough and ready at that time. Because you bought the company, you took it public, and then the, the crash market. happened <laughs> within so, within weeks, right? So our stock went. Uh, we went public at oh, was it fourteen or fifteen dollars a share, and I think it, within a month it was at six. That was not a very favorable thing. And actually, many of our clients had bought the stock in the hopes that it's going to be a great thing. Well, fortunately, those who bought it at six is now probably a thousand times in value. So. Anyway, it worked out okay if you hang on. Of course, the stock might have gone to six anyway, and it, or, or it would have, your value would have gone down anyway, but you would have had a worse balance sheet if you hadn't done the IP. Oh, absolutely. No, there's no question about it. And when, anyway, it was a leveraged buyout. We sort of talked about, I talk about all the details and sort of the fears and tribulations that I had. <clears throat> Another question from the audience. Uh, Few founders are able to transition as companies grow in maturity and size. What did you find most challenging about that transition? What qualities does someone need to lead through that evolution? I think uh, there was a part of me that, as I look back, I didn't think about it at the time, but I knew I had this sort of handicap thing with dyslexia. I, I really needed to surround my people with really smart people who had shared the common vision that we had about the company and what we were about. And I had the confidence that I could sort of lead them and they helped me in categories that I was completely incompetent in. And so as a team, we were able to create some pretty good things. And I think it might have been that sort of handicapped thing that sort of always lurked in my mind that I needed help from really other smart people. And I think all the way through, it, it sort of I, it's sort of a central theme that I really didn't uh, think about it at the time necessarily, but I think it's certainly true. You um, you you famous well the, the board famously fired one of the CEOs. Well, the, I guess the only CEO. I had to fire him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was nineteen uh, two thousand four. Uh, I had we had appointed a, a gentleman uh, to be uh, the CEO at the time, and uh, he lasted about nine months. And the board came to me and said, "It's just not working out. We just don't have the confidence in some of the decisions, et cetera, et cetera." And they asked me, uh, "Would you come back?" I was chairman. Uh, Would you become CEO again? I was probably sixty six or something like that, and uh, thinking, well, okay. <laughs> it took me about four seconds to say I would do it, because I, <laughs> I knew the company needed some different leadership, and I knew they were right. There's no question about it. And so in 2004, we just come out of the, the, the decline of the dot-com boom, and we were suffering. We were, the company had been great in 1999 and 2000, and then fell on some rough times in the ensuing couple of years. So we needed a new direction, and uh, the fellow that was running it wasn't providing that, and so I came back <clears throat> in 2004 and did it for the next four years, and I appointed Walt Bedinger, CEO then in 2004, and he's done a fantastic job. And we work still to this moment uh, very closely. I think one of the things that's interesting that you call out about that period was that you that, that some of the company's values had gotten out of whack. So you totally. had something you had called nuisance fees or what Walt Bettinger calls gotcha fees. Yeah. Um, Explain that, but but also can you sort of understand you you were still chairman. Can you understand how that how that happened? You, it must have been a source of I don't I don't I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth. You couldn't have been happy about it. I was not happy about a lot of those things, but you have to let the reins go if you appoint someone CEO to do certain mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. and keep your mouth shut as such. I mean, my mouth is not always shut, let me tell you. <laughs> so so you could probably say I went along with it. Uh, but anyway, uh, 
the gotcha fees are simply, you, you all know them. The bank used to charge you every little monthly statement. You'd pay $3 for the service and so forth. And, and those were kind of things were really nuisance fees. And the one thing I really, uh, even to this moment, uh, people have to pay $30 or $35 for a bounce check. We took, we took that out. At Schwab, we don't have any bounce checks. We don't have any nuisance fees. All that stuff has gone away. Banks still do some of that stuff, actually. And but you, everyone's pretty familiar with the gotcha fees. Yeah. And and you, uh, well, it's in the auto industry. It's the uh, it's the floor mats are the, are the nuisance fees of buying a car. I think so. <laughs> now you just uh, eliminated probably the most famous fee in the history of the brokerage industry, which is the which is the, the commission. brokerage commission. We were on that descent uh, from the earliest of days, and so my my hope was that we would eventually get there where we had enough other businesses. Sort of, in many respects, it would be analogous to Google in some ways, that uh, search is free, but then you use other services along the way. You buy some of the products and do some of the things. In their case, don't worry about it. We're not going to do what they do, advertising, use your information to sort of set you up for these different purchases and so forth. Um, but we have mutual funds and we have a bank and people borrow from us and we have a lot of different ways that people use us. And uh, so commissions we took to zero. And so it makes it really very convenient. And I think people, uh, we've already seen a nice influx of new business coming in. Uh, people seeking out uh, free commissions. They're leaving some of the old traditional firms and coming to us, and we're very happy about that. <laughs> uh, when you did that, a, a venture-backed startup called Robinhood took out a full-page ad in the newspaper congratulating you for following them on on having no-fee brokerages. And I, I, I wonder what you thought about that and if they remind you a little bit of, of you. Yeah, I mean, certainly there was uh, competition. as wonderful thing about American business, so much competition. So we have to keep on our toes all the time. And uh, so they were doing successful uh, growth themselves, most of which were very teeny accounts. Uh, and I have to say their transactions are somewhat impaired because they don't provide price improvement and things like that to clients. So um, but the very teeny transactions is probably a, a preferred way to do it with zero commissions, even though you don't get a superior transaction with price improvement uh, going to you, the benefit to you. So we, anyway, we have other firms that some banks were providing. If you put $100,000 in there, they would give you free trades. So it was in the marketplace was happening. So we thought, ah, let's do it now. So we went to zero. Uh, it's a good value. <laughs> do you think how a company treats its employees uh, has a direct impact on revenue. For example, uh, the better a company treats its employees, the bigger the return on investment. Absolutely. Uh, that's probably the number one resource you have is your employees in our business. And uh, I think we do really well at that. I think uh, we have a value system at Schwab that I think everyone hangs on to. And if you come into Schwab and you have some other values outside that, uh, we you don't last very long at Schwab. It's all about customer service, not about sales. And so, anyway, it's been invaluable, and we've grown, and I think our employees have really benefited by what we do. Can you uh, talk about, as, uh, <clears throat> given that last question on employees, um, talk about how, as an entrepreneur and as a leader, you you process when you have to tell employees to go, when you have layoffs, which you've had at various stages oh. throughout the history of the company. Well, uh, one example I talk about in the book was very painful for us. It was after the 2000 crash, as I mentioned, the dot-com boom and all that stuff, and we had to lay off a large number of people, and it was a very painful thing for myself and my wife at the time. And so we decided to put up a big fund to help people that we had to let go to go back and recharge themselves with they want to become a nurse or they want to become a whatever might want to go back to law school or medical school or whatever with a fund to help them on to sort of repot and uh, so we felt pretty good about that and sure enough the 10 million dollars went away in a hurry <laughs> 
Uh, how do you decide on on your make it or break it choices? In other words, how do you think about risk? I think about it all the time. Uh, but also, uh, without taking risks, you're not going to make any progress. So we had many products along the way that we thought were pretty interesting. And the clients told us eventually when we came out with it, they're no good or they don't function properly. We trash them. And so we listen all the time to our clients. We're always probably annoying to them, surveying them about this particular thing, that kind of service, this kind of service. And so we want to listen to what they say and try to, uh, you know, do the things that uh, they suggest. But do you, um, you know, to use a sports sports analogy, some people are, you know, the data tells them what to do. Other people are the gut, their gut tells them what to do over your career can, do you identify with one or the other as a leader? Oh, there are many things that we have done along the way that people said, gee, that's such a great service. Why didn't you start it last year? You know, <laughs> I mean, they didn't know people don't come necessarily with, with great ideas. You've got to sort of go into marketplace. You've got to be creative enough to put the idea out there. And hopefully most of them stick. If they don't, then you obviously trash them. Uh, but I think you've got to be, you know, like some of the great innovations you see that are obvious innovations that uh, that have come up along like Netflix being so easy for you to get a nice movie on a Sunday evening or something right in the convenience of your television there. You don't have to go to Apple TV and all that stuff. It's fantastic. Or whether it's pull out your iPhone and do that kind of thing. It's just all these great creations. In fact, I think one of the greatest things that happened in many, many years is the Internet. And it's just beginning what's happened and what you're able to do because of that capability is unbelievable, really. And it'll get faster. And as we know, 5G comes along and hopefully other things will come along. and will give you more privacy than you probably have today because a lot of the firms have used your private information for their advertising and such. But uh, so we're talking about that in backstage about blockchain and things like that. Someday you'll be in control completely of your privacy. Not today, but someday. Well, as as someone who's you're not a technologist, uh, you weren't trained as a technologist. No. Um, you how do you how do you make these decisions? Because on the one hand, with the internet, you were clear this was a big technological change, and Charles Schwab Corporation was going to invest aggressively. Right now, in your field, everyone wants to talk about cryptocurrencies, and Schwab is not jumping on that bandwagon. Well, you did on the internet. Yeah, yeah. cryptocurrencies is sort of a, not something that I'm in favor of right now because it's really has no... Yes, they have security, but they don't have anything backing up the, the currency itself. You want to have full faith and credit of somebody behind it, like the U.S. government would be pretty important to have, or a bank or something. So this is sort of a something that you can dream about. And in fact, I own one coin. I own one Bitcoin. I got it about three years ago. I guess I got a half a coin for my youngest son, and I got a half a coin for my son-in-law, making one coin. <laughs> it was worth $16,000 at that Christmas. And I think within six months, it was worth 4000 So I lost 75% of my so-called gift. <laughs> not a good place to be. Not a good place to be. And I kept telling them, this is not a great place to be. So I suffered right through it. And they saw, I think my son sold everything he had in terms of cryptocurrencies. So anyway, he's a, he's a sharp investor. <laughs> I'm a stupid investor. <laughs> I still own the coin. <laughs> You'll be okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chuck, we're in the, I can't remember if it's the ninth or tenth year of an economic expansion in the United States and, and a bull market. Um, logic or history, even common sense would suggest that's not a great place to be as, as an investor. What are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I happen to be, you have to be an optimist when you're someone like myself. So, uh, I, I think the undercurrent of the economy is really strong. And I, and I happen to be a believer that the tax bill that went through to help 
our corporations in America become internationally competitive. Uh, it was a fantastic thing. The cash flows of companies are higher. You see, even right now, uh, reporting most guys, most firms are reporting improved earnings. Uh, so the underpinning, the consumers seems to be in really great position of confidence. And it can go on, but nonetheless, economies always, markets always go up and down. You got it. That's a fundamental, whether it's currencies, stocks, bonds, interest rates, you name it. Um, markets all, always go up and down. So if you're a smart investor, understand that and making sure that you just hang on for the long term and you look at any chart over long term and I don't, you can define it yourself. It can be three years, five years, 10 years. Uh, it always ends up here and then eventually ends up over here. And I'm talking about things that grow. I'm talking about stocks. I'm not necessarily talking about gold. I'm not talking about silver, commodities of that. that that's, that those things don't really grow necessarily. They go up and down by shortness of supply or demand, over demand, those kinds of things. Uh, but stocks and things of, like that are the function, the thing that can really grow. And we've seen it. You look at any of the great companies. I talk about, I mean, to make my point, every company I've ever been on the board of, I've been on four S&P 500 companies, and no management has ever come into the boardroom and said, we can't grow next year. They always have a plan about growth. Some don't achieve it, but all have a plan to grow. And uh, that's what companies are, that's what we do. Can you talk about the role of mentorship? Is there someone that played that role in your life? What important lessons did you learn? I didn't have any single person that was my coach as such. Uh, uh, my father was a lawyer, and so he had really not much uh, background in what I was up to in economics and then on the finance stuff. Um, so that was... I think the biggest motivation that I had as a kid was our family came up, dad came up through the depression years and how important money and saving was. So that was really a fundamental learning I got from my family. Make sure you do well enough and pack something away for tomorrow. And uh, so I read a lot of biographies <clears throat> when I was a kid <laughs> about who, who were the people that really did well, success in business, whether it's in most of which... I sort of drifted towards those who did finance and, uh, whether it was JP Morgan or somebody like that, that's what I want to do. I, I want to get wealthy. I don't want to be sitting around here and say, I can't buy that. You know, that's what you do when you're 12 years of age. <laughs> you want to buy the bike? Well, in my case, we went out and found a used bike and I had a used bike. I was really happy with the used bike. It worked well rather than. A new Schwinn? No, I didn't have a new Schwinn. I had a used bike. But I greased that baby up every day, and it really functioned. <laughs> uh, can you share some words of wisdom about navigating external changes and making them work in your favor? Well, uh, I think for sure you, you just... It's, it, Education, it's understanding what, what you're talking about, making sure you have every avenue sort of figured out, and then, then take the risk to make a decision to go one way, and if it doesn't work, then change your mind and come out with a different way. I mean, be flexible. flexible flexibility and understanding how to be flexible is really critical. I promised you and everyone that at some point this evening we would talk about marketing. And uh, you you write a lot about why marketing was important to you. And not just marketing, but also public relations and public speaking. Could you, could you talk about that as a business leader? Well, um, those are all learnable things. They really are learnable things. And I learned about marketing, for instance, uh, I learned about PR. I learned about, I would never learn how to be a great salesman. That's the one thing I could never do, particularly if it's a bad product, <laughs> like insurance. <laughs> so 
I always wanted to surround myself with a really something I could be really enthusiastic about, a great product that I was deeply involved in and really had confidence in. So we created Schwab. So I've always been, I like to talk about the company because what we do and what we stand for and all those are the values that our company has. And I was not, you know, in the PR, I would go around early in the early days of the company. We couldn't afford much advertising, very expensive. It's even very expensive today, but we can certainly afford it today. Uh, but I went around to radio stations all over the country to try to introduce to the world the benefits of discount brokerage. And, and it seemed to work. And I got introduced or got, you know, uh, appointments with different radio stations. And then I got a few TV stations and a few articles in newspaper, like the one I talked about early on. And we got just continuous to be out there, out in front. And then talk to groups like this about the benefits. This is now, we're not at the very early on, way before, um, 40 years ago, talking to groups about the benefits of discount brokerage, why it was really important to you and how you could not only just save money, but be able to make decisions free of commission sales guys. And um, so that was what we did. I think you remember saying that you, in, in any interview you ever gave, you ended by saying something, either giving the 800 number or, or saying, come see us, something to that effect. That's what a good marketer does. <laughs> and call 800-727-84000. You also, about, uh, about communicating with, with journalists, you, you have some wisdom in here. But I, this is my personal favorite p- passage that I'm going to read, Uh-oh. and I'm going to share this with other with other CEOs. In, in 2004, five or so, after when you were be- into the just beginning the uh, the return a, a return a turnaround of the company, uh, my former colleague Betsy Morris at Fortune, who I believe you had worked with on an article about corporate leaders with dyslexia, right? Exactly, came, came to you and said, "I want to write." about uh, the turnaround at Charles Schwab and that your the executives advised you that that was a bad idea it's too soon too soon we haven't proven anything no. yet and uh and and you you write here uh, there were any number of reasons to say no but i knew that a good story requires some tension and we had enough progress under our belt that i felt we should take the chance in retrospect the piece focused more on David's departure. This is David Patrick. Uh, then we'd hoped it made a, it made a more dramatic story, I suppose. But the underlying theme was clear. We were fixing Schwab. We were, and that she did. She actually wrote this a picture of me, and not in this in, in Fortune, this uh, the, the uh-huh. other the, uh-huh. the real uh-huh. book uh-huh. out there, which I really love. It's one of the best. It's me as a. 13-year-old, I think. It was 13 years of age. Fortune magazine, she the Betsy uh, had a child who was dyslexic. So she did this article about executives that had dyslexia in their background. And so she came, interviewed me, interviewed a bunch of other characters. And uh, unbeknownst to me, she got a picture of me at 13. So that was the front page of the Fortune magazine. A 13-year-old, I said, oh, my God. <laughs> Nobody recognized me. That was good. We we used to have a big staff of photo researchers who yeah. would go find yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, those days you are nasty gone. guys. Yeah, <laughs> you're part of that fake stuff, aren't you? <laughs> so I know you're joking right now about that because you 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 had the presence of mind to say to your people, yeah, they they've got to find some of the they've got to find some of the bad stuff. That's their job, and that's okay because okay. that makes it believable yeah. and authentic so, when they tell the whole story. Totally, right. <laughs> not all not all CEOs are like that. Well. Well, hopefully there's one. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let, let's end with uh, you, you. You know what your story about working with, uh, the, you know, with having a photo of the 13 year old you and working with other parents and children r- reminds me is that it's not just about numbers on a spreadsheet f- for you. No. It, you do want to make money. You've said that very clearly, but it's, it's, it's about more than that. So Chuck, could we end with, um, j- just explain to people how you've managed to not only build a business, but have a good time doing it and why that matters to you. Well, you know, you think about 
purpose of life and what do you try to do? You try to maximize the best of your ability, whatever it might be. And I'm always in great admiration for those who are great music, musicians, and unbelievable, or great at being a doctor, or great at being a lawyer, or whatever it might be. Just pursue your passions. And that's what I, I just had a young boy in today who's applying to college. I'd like to help these kids get into the best school they can get into. But that's one of the conversations we have is about really pursuing your passion, whatever they might be. And Making bit, you know, business like myself and being successful financially, you know, or you also have a huge obligation to give back a large part of what we do in terms of being successful. And I'm, we're happy to do that for sure. But I think it's, you know, it's every kid needs to find the direction in life, the passion that they have and how they can c- contribute in a significant way, the best they can to society. And I think that's sort of a way, way it should work. I'd uh, be remiss if I don't ask you, uh, is, uh, how is your golf game today? It's, I have to say it's as good as I can remember. Really? <laughs> well, b- before we close, please bear with me for a moment. Our, our thanks to Charles Schwab, founder, former CEO, and chairman of the Charles Schwab Corporation, whose new book is Invested changing forever the way Americans invest. This program has been part of the Commonwealth Club's Ethics and Accountability Series, underwritten by the Travers Family Foundation, with additional support from the Bernard Osher Foundation for our Good Lit programs. I'm Adam Lashinsky, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you.